When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the Texas Midlands receipt. That is right. Yeehaw, motherfuckers. What's up? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Hello. And joining us once again, we've got Michael O'Burns. What's up, y'all? Have you have you stopped going? Have you didn't? Wasn't there a time when you went by an your Irish Irishized version of your name? You know, digitally I did, but not in pronunciation and person. I got a little dramatic once and said, so people might not know this. Guy Fieri's birth name is Guy Ferry, but he found out that his grandpa had to change his name in Ellis Island when he got married to honor his Italian heritage. He changed it to Fieri. And I, for a while, was saying, when I get married, I'm going to go back to uh, the Gaelic version of my family name as an affront to the queen and everything she stands for. Um, but yeah. No one else wanted me to do it. So, you know, but spiritually, I feel that way. I thought I thought you were going to say in order to honor his family, Guy Fieri married his cousin. <laughs> no, no, that too. He absolutely married his cousin. But that was a separate thing. No, I'm kidding. I should never say that. He's a lovely wife, great kids, hunter and rider. Um, and I would never want to speak ill of them. And I was going to say, fun fact, uh, like theorist of film, uh, who also was a big influence at various stages in our lives, who used to go by John Malarkey, has has now taken on the Gaelic version, the Irish version of his name. I don't even know how to say it. it like, Mallorca? I'm, I'm 50-50, so I'm not going to do it out loud in a recorded <laughs> setting. Um, but no, I think that was the first thing that got that ball rolling in my mind as well. So a mix of a, a film-based philosopher and a Food Network star you know, inspired me. But I'd say, you know, if you if you if you have a name that was changed by uh, some colonial power, you know, change it back. You you have that ability. But um, and that's what this movie's about, right? I I take taking taking the power back <laughs> using using something along those you lines. You got there, yeah. Um, Yes, yeah, so we got there. So anyway, this week we're going to be talking about uh, Hell or High Water, 2016 film written by Taylor Sheridan, who writes anything that has to do with the west or really anything it seems like nowadays since all the tv shows that are coming out seem to have his name he writes every um, show that isn't what like online millennials in major cities watch so there's yeah, like two Par- paramount yes. plus is like the sheridan yeah. the taylor sheridan channel yeah so there's like the, <laughs> the two to three million people who watch like euphoria succession righteous gemstones and then the 300 million people that watch all of his shows that's right. That's right. And he also wrote uh, Sicario. He wrote and directed Wind River. Um, and what we're talking about is like Yellowstone, 1883, these TV shows that he uh, most recently has gotten a lot of attention for. Uh, Hell or High Water was also directed by David McKenzie from Starred Up fame. Um, I love the fact that it's a Scottish dude that's doing a very great take on um, the kind of American West. Um, but yeah, it stars Chris Pine and Ben Foster. And um, it's one of my favorite films from that year and really one of my favorite westerns, post-westerns of um, of the last um, recent memory, I would say. So as always, what we'll do is we'll go around and we'll talk about our first impressions of watching this film, what's it been like on repeated viewings, etc., etc. Let's start with Michael. 
Yeah, so um, I missed this film the first time around because um, I think it did, not to give myself an excuse, it went a little bit under the radar in, in 2016. Um, hey, for a film that got nominated for four Academy Awards, it went way under the yeah. radar. That's what my partner and I were talking about last night. I was like, yeah, it kind of went under the radar. And she's like, it was nominated for four Academy Awards and a bunch of Golden Globes. And I was like, I know, for some reason, it's still kind of hit. Yeah. So I, I, I had wanted to watch it. Um, I am a fan of the Western, the neo-Western, the post-Western, but truly never got around to it, which is why I was excited when producer Matt, the uh, best podcast producer in the game, except for the culture wrench producer, Maddie, um, you know, said that this was an option. I, I kind of jumped at it because I wanted a good excuse to watch it. Um, I will say that I liked it very much. Uh, I've watched it one and a half times now, once last night, and then the first half again just now. Um and one thing that really struck me watching it is I recently watched um, Peter Bogdanovich's Last Picture Show in a, in a theater. Mm. Um, I'd never seen the theater before. Quentin Tarantino's Theater, The New Beverly, was playing it. And I thought, why not? And it's very interesting because, you know, in that movie, you have Jeff Bridges as like a 17-year-old in a small Texas town. So it's fun to watch this. And just imagine it's the same guy who eventually became mm. a Texas Ranger and fit into that role. But, um, yeah, I like it a lot. And I would say... I'll say something kind of like controversial. We can maybe unpack later. Um, this movie is like low key, super woke for a movie. That's a, a bunch of white <laughs> guys. Some of whom are explicitly racist in Texas shooting guns. Um, it's a very woke movie. And by that I'm kind of being tongue in cheek, but it's a shockingly economically progressive and sort of politically critical film. And, and it's signposted at different points throughout, I think in really uh subtle but important ways and that's something i didn't expect i didn't expect to walk watch this film and, and have a page of notes in front of me about like the relationship to the to the western and the beginning and ends of capitalism and what that means so i'm excited mm. to to maybe break that down a little bit but um yeah only only positive stuff to say and it's, it's a movie i think i'll definitely watch again at some point awesome what about you raymond um uh, i i think i saw this one in theaters when it came out um i can't really remember because i've seen it a few times I, I remember after it came out watching it with my dad because it it just has dad it's movies dad sort of movie. written, in, yeah, yeah. written all over it <laughs> Very good so it was movie. one of those movies that uh i enjoyed and you know it's it was easy enough to uh pop in the blu-ray player and watch with him one time when i was home <clears throat> and i've seen it a couple times since then uh, I think it's a lot of fun. I I really really like this movie. Um, I think it's uh, just a solid, tight, well acted. Um, there there is some stuff with regards to the script that we can touch on later um, that I I wanted to bring up, uh, but not necessarily as a negative. Just I I, I think as sort of an interesting um, an interesting case study after a fashion but uh i'm curious michael to throw it back to you what was um what was the thing that made you want to rewatch the first half was it just like oh i'm just going to throw this on as a refresher real quick before jumping on the mic or was there something in that first half of the movie that you really wanted to chew on a little bit more oh this is not very exciting um but the gist of it was when i watched it last night i kind of really got into it at about the halfway point um and by the end of the film i was all in it took me a little bit to get caught up or kind of caught into the vibe of the film. So I had a little bit of time before this, so I just threw it on um, to kind of pay closer attention to the first half. And I think there were like a few, you know, I don't want to say throwaway lines, but subtle things that I did miss or things I noticed around. Um, if I would have had time, I would have loved to watch it all the way through again. But th that was basically it. 
All right. Yeah, I was yeah. just curious because um, I'm, I am interested, too, in, in seeing some of the stuff that you gleaned from it. And I think you you brought up an interesting perspective uh, in your first thoughts as well, that there is there's an economic progressivism to this. Mm-hmm. But there's also some stuff that I think Taylor Sheridan is very consciously playing with with regards to um, some sort of subtly. Uh, regressive stuff with Ben Foster's character and some yes. not so subtly regressive stuff with uh, Jeff Bridges' character. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, Austin, I'm curious what you think, man. Yeah, I um, I saw this film, I've only seen it once before and I saw it around, you know, 2017, 2018. So it was a little bit after I saw it at home um, and I loved it. And I, I just remembered that it was fast and action-packed and that it was this story of these brothers and that it was sort of like... I kind of have this collection in my mind of, of, of films that I called like dude poetry or masculine poetry. And it's sort of like Sam Shepard westerns are like the, the perfect sort of like cowboy poet stuff. And I think this fits really well into that. And then I've got stuff like The Grey, the film with Liam Neeson, which is like this really rad metaphysical exploration of of the human in nature and um so i'm really interested in kind of exploring just kind of what what the masculine even means and how the masculine has been portrayed throughout these various myths and stories that we tell ourselves and and so this is one of those films that that just has resonated in my mind from that perspective and i remembered that there was some sort of like post financial crisis critique of housing and of finance, but I couldn't remember the specifics of it. Like I couldn't remember exactly why they were robbing that bank. And then I was like, oh, that's right. And then it clicked. And then it was like, okay, it kind of made all sense that they're robbing the bank that they actually owe the back loans to. And um, and for me, the then it, then it kind of started to ripple outwards. And, and then the connection to the great financial crisis made a lot of sense. And then the connection to a lot of like resentment and then the racial tensions and things like that start to make a little bit more sense and then I started to even see this time around some of the um, gendered biases or the gendered prejudices right where there's this just a tiny little line where you know Chris Pine's wife um, he says something like you know I'm giving you all of this and then you're going to take care of it and she's like great another thing for me to do and you kind of get this idea that you know the women have really been betrayed by a certain type of man um, uh, and, and so I thought there was something really interesting in that. And then, of course, you just have like a really kind of kind of opposite of what we talked about last week. You really just have um, a, a personal re- redemption story. And I think each of the characters have their own redemption arc, which is really interesting. And I think the the debt that is meant to be paid off in the literal sense to the bank is also mirrored or there's a parallel to these debts that these men maybe owe to society or to God or um, or or whatever. And I think the film ends on this very sort of, you think that everything's wrapped up, but I don't think that there is peace. Um, and I think you sort of get this, this idea that um, the cycle of violence continues um, the, the the cycle of discontent continues, um, which is also kind of ties into a lot of the work that I've been doing recently on this notion of like infinite debt and whether or not that infinite debt can ever be paid off and how in the economy, the banks are the ones who continue to force us to, to be burdened by these debts and 
Um, and then, but in society that there are these like religious figures, you know, you got Jeff Bridges character who's talking about God a lot, the backdrop of Texas, you know, God is invoked quite a bit. And then there's this idea that there's these breaks of time, right? That this, these new epochs, right? These new sort of periods of time and that there's these like divisions. You have the young boys, then you have like the, the kind of like 40 year old men, and then you have like the retirees. And, um, there's like these generational slippages, I guess we might say. And and so the film was just, it really came alive to me last night in, in a way that like, I think, well, maybe, maybe that part will stick with me more than it had previously. But I just think this is a fantastic film all across the board. I love seeing, I love when pretty boys just get a little bit of scruff and a hat and then they do, like, like we talked about this with Chris Evans in Snowpiercer. Like, that's what they do with, like, really, really pretty boys. They give them a little bit of a beard and they put a hat on. But or Pine a pulls on. it off. He pulls it off in a way Evans Great. never could. Evan is just, like, kind of too pretty at a certain level. Whereas <laughs> um, Pine just, I buy it. And I think with even with Pine, there was, yeah. I think, on the press tour for this film or something after it, he showed up, like, whiskey drunk to some interview awesome. event thing and i'm like yeah like because he's a little bit about that life oh and he had his dui in new zealand once whereas i just feel like evans wouldn't pull that not to say it's like cool to get duis but i think that pine pine's interesting you know he has his english literature degree from berkeley so we know he's a thinking man but he also is known to uh booze a little bit so he's that type of guy and i i also regularly see him leaving a yoga class in, near my place in la so he's also a healthy he's he contains multitudes i i dig that that's my kind of role model Actually, i mean yes. come on man you are you're very much a chris he, pine he, type he looks pretty good in a cowboy hat too and his eyes man come on those piercing eyes and i gotta say this because um ben foster i think people one of who his are... generation's finest on-screen scumbags <laughs> Amazing. I think that he's one of his generation's best actors. He's great. Yeah. Like, I think that he is truly phenomenal, and I think that he kind of flies under the radar. Like, people don't, when they talk about the great actors that are like late 30s, early 40s, not too many people are like Ben Foster, Ben Foster, Ben Foster. Yeah. And I think it's because um, he plays a lot of supporting roles. Have you seen Leave No Trace? Yes. I, I was going to say that seems like a very Austin Ben Foster movie. But sorry for cutting you off. No, that's basically yeah. it. I I just truly think that he is remarkable. Yeah, he, and, he plays um, chaos in, in such a really perfectly. electric and scary way. And throughout the film, he manages to sort of like create a tension that would normally exist, maybe between two characters or like between a character and a setting, all internally. So it's like when he walks into a room or a scene, or even the scene where you know I don't know if I'm getting ahead of it, but like. You know, the scene where he's at the gas station and just stares at a guy that rolls up in a car playing, like, rap rock. And his simple stare injects a violent chaos into a situation. There, there's a movie that came out, uh, like, five years ago called Hostiles. It's directed by Scott Cooper. And I, I was sitting in the theater watching it. It's not a bad movie. Um, but about halfway through it, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, you know what this movie really needs? It's just, like, a good old dose of ben foster and then not 10 minutes later he comes in amazing <laughs> and just starts stampeding through the fucking scene it's great um but there is there is definitely a certain type of ben foster movie at this point i think he does maybe one of the reasons he flies under the radar is he does get typecast a little bit but i i think he's wonderful mm. 
Yeah. So, okay. So before we start kind of peeling back the layers and uh, turn the turn the mic over to Mike a little bit here so we can uh, get into some of the meteor stuff, let's do a quick plot rundown. Um, so basically the story starts off in West Texas where brothers Toby and Tanner, they robbed a couple branches of Ted, uh, Texas Midland Bank. Though the robberies are well-planned, Tanner's wild nature, that's Ben Foster, leads him to take unnecessary risks, frustrating Toby. Now back at their family ranch, they bury the getaway car in a pit with a backhoe. Their mother has recently died after a long illness, uh, leaving the ranch in debt because of a reverse mortgage provided by Texas Midlands Bank, which would lead to its foreclosure if not settled immediately. Meanwhile, um, oil has actually been recently discovered on their land, and Toby's determined to ensure a comfortable life for his estranged sons. Now, there's two Texas Rangers, Marcus and Alberto, and they're assigned to the case. Um, So Marcus is pretty close to retirement, just a couple weeks away. He investigates robbery, and he quickly determines that the brothers are in on this, and he decides to set up a sort of sting operation where they're going to stake out the what he believes to be the final Texas Midland bank that they're going to hit up, and they'll be able to catch him in the act. But because the brothers have a pretty good plan, they have um, figured out a way to convert money through a casino, which makes their money untraceable and kind of leaves them in the clear. Now, the two rangers, when they're staking out the Texas Midland Bank, um, they end up finding nothing, but they figure out that there's a pattern to these bank robberies, and they determine that it's either this bank or the one in Post. So they decide to go to Post, which is in Oklahoma, right? Because this is all taking place in either Texas or Oklahoma. So Post is in Oklahoma, is that right? I think it's in Texas as well. I think the the, the casino is in Oklahoma where they go to do their money laundering, yeah. And then they go back to Texas. Okay, cool, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So uh, they figure out that that's going to be the final one. So they uh, head on the road to, to kind of go head them off. Um, but what happens is, is that the brothers arrive at the bank uh, early in the morning, obviously before the rangers get there, but not early enough to beat the crowd. And so there's a boatload of people in the crowd. They jump in there and a shootout ensues because it's freaking Texas and people have guns everywhere. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Tanner gets shot. I'm sorry, Toby gets shot, and Toby drives off as they're being chased by a posse of townspeople. The brothers then race out of town with the local posse in pursuit, and after gaining some distance, Tanner stops and fires an automatic weapon at him, scaring everybody off. The brothers then split up. Toby takes the money using another vehicle while Tanner creates a diversion. He draws all the lawmen into the desert, hides up in the hills, and starts picking them off with a sniper rifle, and ends up fatally shooting Alberto. Now, Toby passes through a police checkpoint without any incident, And he launders the stolen cash at a casino where he sees the news reports that his brother has actually been killed himself. He takes the casino's check to the bank just in time to avoid the ranch's foreclosure. And he uh, actually turns the ranch over into a family trust. Again, Texas Midland Bank. Um, Now, following his retirement, Hamilton visits his former office. This is uh, Marcus. This is uh, Jeff Bridges' character. He visits the former office after his retirement, and he learns that Toby's been cleared as a suspect, as his record is clean, and he has no motive, since his new oil wells earn him more in a month than the total stolen of it all and the robberies altogether. The money from the ranch's oil wells is deposited at the Texas Midlands Bank, which refuses to cooperate with the investigation for fear of losing management of the family's trust fund. Now, despite the lack of evidence, Marcus remains certain that Toby was involved, but 
The person who took over is like, hey, it's a dead issue. Go enjoy your retirement. But Marcus doesn't like this, so he confronts Toby at the ranch and he wishes to know the reason behind the robberies. Toby basically explains that he's resolved to not let poverty affect his sons like it had affected him and Tanner. Marcus tells Toby that he holds him responsible for the death of Alberto and the tension of their conversation builds as a clear prelude to an impending violent shootout. But they're interrupted when Toby's ex-wife and children arrive. As Marcus departs, Toby suggests that they meet again soon to finish the conversation and bring some peace. Marcus replies that he would like to meet again and maybe he will bring some peace to Toby before leaving. And that's the end of the movie. All right, before we continue, though, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor this week's episode, Storyblocks. Look, Storyblocks is freaking rad, okay? They are the complete stock solution that provides an unlimited library of over a million plus royalty-free, high-quality audio, video, and images all through cost-effective subscription plans. I've used Storyblocks for years, Wisecrack on the main channel. We use Storyblocks, and they're great because you basically have a royalty-free, demand-driven library that's right at your fingertips with an ever-growing library of uh, content that is basically being optimized. So they're adding like new 4K and HD footage, for example, After Effects and Premiere Pro templates, music, images, special effects, and more. And remember, all the assets are royalty-free, so you can use them for both commercial and personal projects. And one of the cool things that they've been doing more recently is really beefing out their diversity and inclusivity with regards to content. So they're always changing the face of stock footage to help creators tell the stories in unique and authentic ways that are better representative of a diverse and cosmopolitan culture. And so it's called Restock. And that's their commitment to increasing representation in stock media. And they actually, they hire creators from marginalized communities to actually produce this content. So it's really a great initiative. And um, like I said, I have used Storyblocks forever and Wisecrack use it. And I've really never been let down. So you've got to have a Storyblocks account. So head over to storyblocks.com slash Wisecrack. And you can learn all about what they've got to offer. So that's storyblocks.com slash Wisecrack. Or you can click the link down below. So, all right. Let's get back to the show. Can I say one thing before we get into it? Yes, yes. Great. Thank you for, for, for that. Um, if anyone listening is planning to, to do a bank robbery, I would just say go to the most liberal neighborhood of a liberal state, right? Um, you want to rob a bank where people aren't going to have guns in lines and where the customers aren't going to feel the need to be vigilantes and chase you down in service of capital. You want customers who are going to think to themselves as they're faced then on the floor, you know what, man? Fuck the bank. Take that money, dude. Um, as they are on their way to a reading group or a juice bar or something. I would just say, you know, this isn't this this movie shows you where and where not to rob banks. And I know that we have a, a large criminal contingent to listen to this podcast. That's so right, folks. To you want to you want to rob banks that are populated by docile liberal sheeple, just exactly. like Michael Burns, <laughs> exactly. just like liberal was, sickos over at Wisecrack. I would be on the ground like, cool, man. Like, good luck. Fuck this. Fuck, yeah, fuck Chase. This man. money's I'm, all insured anyway, so it's not going to actually yeah. hurt them. So fuck but, it. It doesn't matter. I just got so anxious in the movie. At a certain point, I was like, god damn it. We're in Texas. Everyone has guns. And when the guys were chasing them, I was like, who does that? If I saw someone commit a robbery to a bank, I wouldn't be like, I got to go stick up for that motherfucking bank. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out, too. So I read a, a little interview with Tyler Sheridan where he's talking about the film when he was doing like Taylor. Taylor Sheridan, sorry, um, when he's doing the um, when he's doing a press tour at the early release of the film, and he was kind of talking about how he, you know, he's from this area, 
and he wanted to give a sort of richer representation of the culture and of the people, especially in the light of the Trump election, which really kind of caricatured and um, there was a lot of debates about like what led to the election of Trump. Was it just dumb redneck idiots who didn't know anything or was it white working class resentments in these quote unquote flyover states? You know, and so Sheridan, he wanted to say, look, I actually want to give a sort of more like rich understanding of certain economic problems that kind of can explain some of the patterns, why people feel like their worlds are being stripped away from them and why the towns, like there's there's so much imagery of these ghost towns in these deserted towns and um, of payday loan billboards that are just fucking predatory that, that are like feeding off of these people who are desperate. And so it can really kind of create a much richer socioeconomic context for understanding some of the some of the tensions, some of the kind of social tensions that that are arising yeah. there. But well, well, so, Michael, that, you you didn't. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, think of this. It just makes me think of that graffiti we see about thirty seconds into the film on the wall outside the bank that says, uh, three tours yeah. in Iraq, but no bailout for people like us." And it's just interesting because right. you could see that being a quote that you could you could see people on the far right and the far left both seeing something like that and being like, "Fuck yeah!" But sorry, I didn't mean to, to cut you off. I was just thinking about that in the context of the the scene you were setting. No, but it's it's one of those things that like Taylor Sheridan is a, a fairly conservative guy, um, and he, but I think he hits on on something with this that is like, if we're all sort of honest with ourselves, I think the, like the last time that ninety nine percent of Americans could agree on something was like <laughs> that the housing collapsed, fucked up, like fucked over everybody, and then the government fucked over everybody again by bailing out banks, um, and it is. It is that like that moment that this film kind of captures where it's like, oh, yeah, these these folks are essentially portrayed as or, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, Austin, since we've been pulling at the mythology thread with regards to all of our Western films, is that these guys, I think one, Ben Foster really sees himself as something of a folk hero in in a way. Whereas Chris Pine, I think, is uh, a guy who's in a tough situation, who's going with, you know, the the last idea that they had in order to uh, uh, get themselves out of this jackpot. Um, but it is it, it is kind of uh, it, it's kind of an interesting film in, in how it's able to sort of align those perspectives and and focus it on these sort of like utilitarian ends of just. We we gotta we gotta get X. I mean, that's the thing that even tips Jeff Bridges off is like they're trying to raise a certain amount of money, and I think that's sort of key to not only the the charm of the characters, but but key to um, getting you on their side is that this isn't this isn't just some fly by night operation where they're you know they're they're just a little uh, a little light and they they want to make things better for themselves or whatever they are they are rectifying a grave injustice and while ben foster is in in sort of like the vocabulary of cinema probably as close to this movie has as a traditional antagonist um he he's really just more like the guy who's handling this in the wrong way, whereas the big bad is, of course, Texas Midlands Bank. Um, it gives you something something to root for. It puts you in their corner a little bit. Yeah, there is something interesting also with Ben Foster's character that Marcus hits on at the end 
that I think is is interesting. He says that uh, you know he calls him his dim-witted brother when he's talking to to Pine, and he's like, you know, he didn't plan it. He did it because it was fun, and that's why at the end he kind of sacrifices himself i mean does he think he's going to get away i mean you know he sits up there on on the hilltop after he's kind of he's sniped lord of the plains yeah and there's something about him wanting to be like to embody a certain mythology a, a certain notion of what it means to be an outlaw and so he's trying really hard to do it and so he enjoys that's why he goes off on that one and he robs that one bank by himself like just doesn't, that wasn't just part do it of the for plan the so yeah. casually he says he has just to take his shit for... and he's just like hey hey brother and pay the bill meet me outside running towards yeah. the <laughs> fuck yeah like for him there was something about the thrill of of just kind of fuck i don't know if he had the principles so much like first of all he doesn't really care about his mother so much so that's not one of the principles that's driving yeah. him. And he shot Second, dad, he doesn't right? really... Yeah, a, a hunting accident. <laughs> yeah, <sorry>. hunting, <laughs> hunting in a barn, they say. Yeah, um, yeah. he shot and killed his dad. Um, so he kind of is a man without an ethic. He's, he's kind of like a Joker character, you know, from The Dark Knight. You know, he, he kind of... He, he lives in that space of, of chaos, of indecidability. And it's funny, my girl turned to me like... Five minutes in, ten minutes in, she's like, "Oh, he's the loose cannon that's gonna fuck everything up." And I was like, "I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah." Like she just was like, "Okay, I, I see where this is going." Whereas Pine, he has an ethos. Like for him, it's he has demons that are haunting him because he did not treat his family the way that he could have, maybe that he would have wanted to, and he couldn't break the cycle of poverty that he was thrown into. And so for him, this is an opportunity to sort of find peace right but like every great western that deals with the man of violence you can never actually enjoy the benefits of the spoils right it's it's john wayne not being able to go into the house at the end of searchers it's logan dying it's shane dying right it's it's that constant idea that you can never actually come back into quote-unquote civilized society if you've made peace through the means of violence and so those are there's some really interesting polarities and some interesting kind of motifs that are explored between those two i agree with you austin but i also i i I want to push back on the notion that ben foster is just kind of chaos that you know as as the joker you know the the uh, character you've compared him to as he's referred to in the movie that like oh some people just want to watch the, the world burn or what have you um I don't really feel that with Ben Foster. I actually think in some ways his ideology or his sort of like animating philosophy is maybe a little bit more pernicious. Um, not not necessarily that I, I find him as a character to be unsympathetic, um, but this is something I kind of alluded to in, in, in what I said earlier about the the movie having sort of like a subtle or sly regressive aspect to that character is that um, Jeff Bridges' partner in this, when they're sitting outside the the one bank, he tells them, you know, like, because he's Native American, he says, well, my people used to own this land, and now, and then your people took this land, and now they took it from you. And there is this sort of like knock-on effect of trauma that the movie is sort of examining. Um and there's this scene at the casino where Ben Foster is is talking to a Native American and, and he goes, you know, Comanche means enemy. And he goes, all right, well, you know what that makes me. And the guy says, 
what, what does he say to him? An enemy? My enemy. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. no, it makes me a Comanche. And <laughs> that seems so intense. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great piece of writing. But I think one of the things it sort of betrays is this notion that, like, Ben Foster, while certainly a victim of, you know, predatory lending, reverse mortgage, housing collapse, all of the above, you know, big bank, big banking in general, he sees that not as something that animates him within this one specific context. He now sees himself, a, a, a white guy, as being kicked down the rung of privilege on a societal scale. And in the way that he responds to that character in the casino, it's one of those things where, like, you get the notion that he he loves he loves the idea of being this underdog or this marginalized person or like it, to him the the idea of like Native American suffering and identity. It's I mean he's quite literally appropriating it in this context. That to him it's just like oh no this is. This is something that uh, I can I can just sort of grasp onto and sort of play act because it feeds into my sense of self mythology and it is it, it it is a sly piece of writing I think it's very effective in that regard yeah doesn't he say something just to, to riff off the self mythology thing when they're in the gas station he's waiting for his Winston's and Dr Pepper and the the rap rock guys in the green car roll up and then uh, Chris Pine takes him out just very deftly but then he says something like. I think Chris Pine is like, you could have got yourself killed, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, no, nah, I'm not supposed to die like that. Or there's some some sense of mythologizing yeah. where like, no, nah, that's not how I'm going to go. This confidence that that he knows he's going to go in some glorious fashion, which, you know, turns out to half and half be true. But yeah. It, it reminds me of Dignan in Bottle Rocket where he goes, you know, they'll never catch me because I'm fucking innocent. And <laughs> and there is that that streak with Ben Foster that, you know, maybe... By the time we do Power the Dog next week, we will have beaten the self-mythology horse to death. But mm. there, there is that strain in this movie where, like, you know, like I always say, the, the best villains are the heroes of their own story. He absolutely sees himself as the hero of this narrative, of the movie in his head. And that, I think, Michael, that's a, that's a, a perfect uh, illustration of that, that scene. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The only thing I don't know, I, I agree that he's definitely he he's self mythologizing, you know. Um, but what I don't know is I don't know if he has internalized the victim narrative so much as he has never had a narrative, and it isn't like Chris Pine, who he clearly has a set of like circumstances that he's warring against, right? But. Ben Foster's been a lifetime criminal. He's served for robberies before, a lot of time, too. Like, so he's kind of always been an agent of chaos, a nomad, an outlaw, for lack of a better terms, right? And um, so what I wonder is, is I wonder if... Because, like, the Michael Caine line, when Alfred says, you know, some, some men just want to watch the world burn, Mike, he's wrong. 
Like, that's the whole point, is that Batman can't understand. No one can understand. Like, Michael Caine isn't right. Michael Caine is a mouthpiece for a certain type of person that can't understand what the Joker's doing, right? Which is why when Batman comes up to him in the prison and he's like, he's like, what do you want me to die for? And he's like, I don't want you to die. He's like, I fucking love you, man. Because the Joker has a set of principles. It's just not one that is understood by the status quo. And so I think it's kind of something similar with Foster here. I, I don't think that his principles are... I'm, I'm the marginalized because of the financial collapse. Because when Chris Pine says, why did you come along with me? He doesn't give him anything except for because you asked me to. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, it that's was like you're it. my little brother. And you asked. And you asked. Yeah. So for me, it's a very different, like, I just, I just don't know if he has internalized. Now, maybe it's unconscious. And I'm sure there's like some sort of structural unconscious, like formation of, of the psyche that, that would make it so that he's like, feeling the symptoms of those collapses but i think that i think that he kind of just is i think he's just getting his rocks off you know in a way he's kind of just fucking everything for lack of it like you know like like in the metaphorical sense like everything is libidinal for him he has so much fun that's why he's hooping and hollering and he's like (laughs) you know i think you're onto something with that libidinous drive there and I do think it's like interesting when we find out at the end of the film, and this is kind of indicated throughout, but when the uh, Texas Ranger who takes over uh, for Jeff Bridges is talking about the brother, Chris Pine, and she's like, he has a clean record. Like he's never been arrested, never done anything. And it kind of sets up this contrast where they both seem like down and out failures, but it's like Chris Pine's character failed within the system. Or unless he was doing a bunch of crimes, he just magically got away with. Whereas it seemed like the Ben Foster character tapped out of any attempt to play within the boundaries of a system a long time ago um, and isn't letting sort of like a systemic ethos or set of boundaries sort of uh, sort of make him repress that desire or that libidinal energy. And that also kind of feed, feeding into to Austin's theory that he he is not abiding by the rules of a of of an internal narrative or anything that notion that like oh maybe the reason that he he's willing to go die in a blaze of glory is not just because of his own perceived self mythology but also because there is really like no happy ending for him that you know he he just can't stay he can't stay away from the heat he can't stay away from the action well you know there's something <laughs> a little Kenny Powers about it in a really dark way um, for anyone who doesn't know that reference, I'm referring to the show Eastbound and Down. Uh, hey, speaking a, of, Kate, Katie Mixon is in, the, yes, in this one. Yes, maybe that's what I was thinking about it. Um, but yeah, like in that, like he just wants to like do rad shit. Where Kenny Powers just wants to like yeah. do some coke <laughs> and jet ski with a naked woman on the back of it. Ben Foster, in a much more kind of insidious way, is like, you know it would be fun? Fucking shooting a gun on top of a ridge at cops SWAT teams guys like it's just he's he's having so much fun in a way that does seem like not to get too uh preciously psychoanalytic uh, psychoanalytic about it but like he's there there's a there's an energy and it's a similar energy we see when he meets the nice young lady and and fucks her in the hotel room next to his brother which is weird too i would just say if you're gonna rob a bank don't do it in texas don't have sex in front of your brother as well would be another <laughs> rule that Michael's I would like rule to number to two. Yeah. <laughs> rule number two. <laughs> Put that in the show notes. Um, just the Ten rules. simple rules by Michael Burns. <laughs> but yeah, he, he is having a, a blast at the casino. Like he, when, when Chris Pine is taking the chips just to hold them and then launder them back and, get in, and, and, and cash out, 
uh, Ben Foster creeps into the frame and he starts pulling chips out because he wants to go play poker and stuff. And yeah. it's like, Chris he's capable Pine is of that. Like, Have you fucking forgotten what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> Chris Pine is in like fucking mission mode. This guy is like up at night, unable to sleep, planning. He, you know, not sure if they're going to make this. And Ben Foster's just like, fuck it, man. I got some sick guns. Met a girl at the front desk, gonna gamble a little bit, stare at Comanche in the eye, like I don't have any fear in my heart. It's it's one of those things. What's that um that quote of like everyone has a plan until you get hit in the face? And it is it is one of those things you kind of get the sense with him that that's like, Yeah, I get it, all your logic and your theory, and we may plan these these bank heists down to the, the nth degree, but when push comes to shove or when the rubber hits the road or when you get hit in the face, you just kind of have to go with it. So why not just go with it from the beginning? <laughs> why not just, why not just lean into that? Yeah. Um, I have a question for you all. If I, if I might pose it about this, this is probably my one entry in your, uh, you know, Western series. I, I can't time travel back to last week. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm doing it next week. So I wanted to ask a, a larger question about Westerns. This film made me think of, right. And, and you can correct me if my history on this is wrong. But a lot of the classic Westerns leading up to the end of the West stuff, we're talking about an era that's like pre-capitalist. Like they're not doing capitalism in the traditional West. They're sort of settling, founding businesses, in, inventing law and ways of order. And I was thinking about a film, and I might be getting this plot wrong. Austin will know because if anyone cares about this, some fun background info. Most of the foundational Westerns I ever watched were in an apartment with Austin and our friend John from Worcester, Mass, watching uh, the films of Sam Peckinpah. Shout, shout, shout yeah. out to John, yeah. And is it the Ballad of Cable Hogue where he it finds water? Yeah. yeah, but then at the end, no one's stopping for water anymore because gas has emerged and people are driving on by? Great. That's so right. like so when I think about that movie it's almost like it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a yeah. brilliant movie. Um and and a great example of Sam Peckinpah having a great sense of humor where, where normally he just wants to watch make you watch people die. Um <laughs> but in that film it's sort of like his western story ends as industrialization, capitalism, automobiles, oil start rising. So it's almost like you can't have a western in that context. And part of me thinks with this movie what it had me thinking was like if you take that western um, framework, and then you plop it in this moment, um, in a moment we could call the decline of capitalism, it, it's like the Western ends up being accidentally anti-capitalist. Because again, Taylor Sheridan is not out here with, with Mao's little red book in his pocket as he's as final draft open. Um, I don't think that's what he's trying to do, uh, but it kind of feels like classic Westerns were pre-capitalist, and now we're seeing what happens when you put the same type of sort of motivation, story, plot stuff in the decline of capitalism, especially in those sort of Texas towns where the system isn't really working. Um, and, and yeah, to, to me, it kind of seems like we're getting this new, ah, I, I guess like if the end of the West was initially the beginning of the financialization of the country, now with like the failure of that, with the mortgage system collapsing, all this sort of stuff, it almost provides this really nice return for those Western narratives. And if, mm. if that just was, was nonsense, you all can tell me and we can delete this. But No, no, I, I get what you're saying. I think that I, I and I wonder how much of it is is conscious or not. I mean, like you just kind of laid out perfectly there, Michael. I think the the history of the Western is like almost by necessity about the encroachment of capitalism at times. 
Like there are a lot of examples, you know, like Once Upon a Time in the West, another phenomenal Jason Robards movie is has a similar plot to it where there's uh, there's a homesteader who has discovered water in, in the middle of a vast expanse um, and is devising to build an entire town based around that discovery. Um, I think that uh, there's this this sort of I, I wonder how much of it though is ideological versus aesthetic um uh, it, what what i'm trying to say is that like it during during the sort of like fall of american empire um as i think well illustrated in this film as it, you know the the financial collapse being one of the major precipitating events to where we are today uh the, there is this sense of like well, as things just kind of hollow out and, and uh, you know, ghost towns pop up in a modern context, it's just one of those things of like, well, how, how else can you frame a story within, within that context? That there, there is just sort of a, um, and I'm, I, I'm not saying this to rebuke anything you were saying. I, I'm just, I'm curious what you rebuke guys think. Do you, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm curious yeah. what you guys think. Do you think it is? an ideological thing consciously or is it just like no well, i don't this, think it's conscious it's, at all there's there's sort of yeah this sort of like yeah. civilizational retraction that just leads to an it lends itself to a natural aesthetic idiom yeah i mean that would be my thought that it's not conscious but that it still emerges because of the mixture of that type of storytelling and that type of uh socioeconomic background i don't think it's consciously doing that but i think it ends up sort of unconsciously emerging or something like that. Austin, what, what, what do you think about my nonsense? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I would say that if you look at a lot of the classic Westerns, a lot of them have to do with, like Raymond was just talking about, the discovery of a resource, which would then turn into the privatization of a resource, which then it would turn into the construction of, uh, of a town, which would then concern uh, turn into like the production of this larger industrial setting that would feed into highways that would connect with cities so there's there's clearly some sort of capitalist industry in its like burgeoning maybe we would call it primitive accumulation um phases but there's also like um like you get this in in a lot of them where it's like you know cattle barons come in and they start fencing off the land and then the ranchers are like what the fuck you can't fence off the land like the land is common so there's the enclosure of the commons which is generally seen as one of the um narratival structures of the foundations of capitalism dating back to 17th 16th 17th century england right so so i've i've developed like in my own work which forthcoming in, in hopefully in a book here in the next year or so um, where I, I call like the I'm, I'm looking at like what is like the essential logic of capitalism and the essential logic of finance in particular and I think there's at least one way we can look at it that it operates by like a threefold structure and what I call inscription enclosure and quantification and so inscription is the act of like meaning making right so let's take let's take once upon a time in the west and the discovery of water so uh the discovery of the water isn't the meaning making activity under capitalism it's when that meaning making activity turns the resource into a resource for a particular purpose right it is water for a town that's the first kind of moment, right? It, as an instance, right? With with um, with land, it would be this is land that will be used for cattle farming or for cattle grazing, 
right? Then there's the second step, which is enclosure. And enclosure is the act of incorporation or privatization. And that's where you say, oh, we own this resource or this land is now the property of X group or corporation or something like that. And then the third step is quantification. And then that's when you basically can figure out how to um, turn this otherwise qualitative thing, you know, uh, water is good for survival into something that's water, water um, is worth X amount of dollars, right? So this threefold kind of this tripartite scheme is I think is a really good way to kind of understand it. And when we think about it in those terms, then we can look at a film like Logan even and we can say actually Logan is still about uh, inscription of DNA, uh, enclosure, privatization of it by that corporation, and quantification the privatization uh, of that resource is now going to lead toward massive super profits for a particular corporation that's trying to colonize DNA. And that's what's being discussed in Logan is it isn't the uh, enclosure of land. It's the enclosure of another resource, which is information in the form of DNA, right? And so I think that all Westerns actually deal with this. And you get the same thing in Hell or High Water, but now it's the financialization of property of town or what sometimes is even referred to in the literature what's called like the anthropology of finance um what's called like these the uh, financialization of everyday life right which is that every aspect of your life where you live how you live where are you going to go eat how are you going to eat what are the relationships that we exchange with each other are they going to be debt relationships you know is it going to be like i give to you therefore you owe me back plus interest i mean whatever these sorts of frames of thinking can can be related to this tendency at the economic level of financialization but it translates into kind of like much deeper social aspects and i think in that sense this film is actually not post-capitalist in any way, but it's actually thoroughly capitalist in the sense that it's maybe even like the most potent form of capitalism, the most kind of like radical and extreme and efficient form of capitalism that has presented itself in this film is like, ah, and here are the tensions. And then if I can just loop this around, last thing I'll say, what this ties into then is the construction of the outlaw. The outlaw in the form of a bank robber has always existed, which is the person living outside against those, that tripartite model of, um, of inscription enclosure and quantification and they're trying to do something different right um or uh in the case of like uh john wayne or shane where they're fighting against the robber barons or i'm sorry the cattle barons or something like that right it's it's them kind of trying to kind of rest aside the local like take the local back from the evil big corporation right and then in this one you kind of get something similar you get them coming up with a clever scheme whereby the bank that is extracting uh, hyper profits actually becomes the ones that service their own debt, right? And so it's the same kind of thing. It's just got these different kind of nuances to it. And I think I think there's a real consistency here from the old classical westerns all the way up through kind of like the neo and post post the, post westerns. The outlaw being a side effect of enclosure, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, all right, all right. But before we continue, you know the deal. We got to give a shout out to our sponsor, Skillshare. Look, Skillshare is a rad sponsor. They've been with us for ages. And the cool thing about them is it's an online learning community where you can get access to classes and then connect with other like-minded creators. And you can basically learn about any skill that you would want to if you are a young or intermediate or even advanced creator looking to sharpen some skills. So one of the things that I've recently been doing is I've been looking through their library on all their rad classes that they have 
in digital design and inclusive design, and they've just got so much stuff that it's really helped me kind of build out my own skill set with a lot of my production work. So um, you can go ahead and check that out as well as all kinds of other skills if you're a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you are a writer. They have all kinds of classes that you can access if you head over to Skillshare. And of course, if you are a listener of Show Me the Meaning, then you can get actually a free trial of their premium membership at Skillshare.com SMTM. That's Skillshare.com com/smtm or you can click the link down below in the show notes. So make sure to go to skillshare.com/smtm so you can explore your creativity and pursue your passions right from the comforts of your very own home by learning about all the goodness that you want to to enhance your skills. skillshare.com/smtm or click the link below. All right, back to the show. I'm ah. so this is something that I uh, I kind of alluded to in my opening thoughts and, and you bringing up uh, the bank and kind of landing on that note. Um, I wanted I, I wanted to touch on something with regards to the script in this film. And it's going to sound like a criticism, but it really isn't. Um, I, I mentioned the stagecoach rule um, uh, on the last episode or two, Austin, the... the uh, mm-hmm. The John Ford movie, the the notion of you know why why don't the Native Americans shoot at the at the horses instead of at the stagecoach? Well, because then there'd be no movie. Right, right, right. So there is the stagecoach rule is very much in effect in Hell or High Water, because these guys could go to literally any bank in Texas, any other non-Texas Midlands bank. Explain the situation to them, say, like, we need to pay off this mortgage and a bunch of, like, back payments or whatever, and we'll be able to make you whole ten times over with just a month of pumping out the oil that's, that's uh, uh, speculators have told us is underneath our land. They could just explain this to literally any bank in, in the state or, I dare say, in the country. But we're assuming they would, they would know to do that and think to do that? I'm not, I'm not saying that they would know to do that yeah. or that they would think to do that. Like I said, this is going to sound like a criticism. Yeah. But I think even if they do think to do that, and it, it, once again, then there'd be no movie. It certainly wouldn't be as exciting as this movie is, it, just them signing a bunch of paperwork with a different bank to, to trade over the lease. But one of the things that I, I wanted to touch on with this is that I think it stands in stark contrast to something like Little Miss Sunshine, which we recently discussed, where the entire narrative of that film is built on a similarly very shaky uh, sort of premise. Um, but I think the reason it works in this film, as opposed to Little Miss Sunshine, is that notion of like cinematic or ecstatic truth that like we've talked a lot about the sort of visual vocabulary of a Western, the, the sort of idiom with which, within which these characters not only are painted, but in which they perceive themselves. There is this notion when I watch it, at least that Michael, they very well may have thought of that, but either Ben Foster talked to Chris Pine out of it or Ben Foster thought of it and never told Chris Pine because he still wants to get his rocks off. So there, it's just one of those things I, I kind of wanted to throw uh, your way, uh, gentlemen, and just kind of see what you what you think about that when not necessarily just in this movie, but when you watch a movie that is built on a really shaky premise that could be resolved very easily without any conflict, drama, or death. Um, what what is the thing that makes you go along with the movie, or what's the thing that kind of takes you out of it? 
Yeah. Michael, what you think? Well, I mean, I, just narrative-wise, maybe it's because I have dumb baby brain, but I just loved how neatly it wrapped up where they took the money <laughs> from the bank to pay off the mortgage to that bank to set up a trust with that bank to then include that bank on the oil money so that also that bank would have no reason to further inquire uh, upon yeah. uh, Chris Pine's complicity, which I did think that was the most interesting thing. Not the most interesting thing, but I like that last conversation that Jeff Bridges has with his replacement where she basically is like, the bank doesn't care. They stole $40,000 from the bank. They're making that off these guys every week now or whatever it is. Um, and I, I enjoyed that so much that it doesn't bother me, but I do. I, I, I definitely get what you're saying there. Right. No, I'm not saying it bothers me. I'm just I'm No, you said I just, the script is bad and that you would physically <laughs> fight Taylor Sheridan in any field um No, the reason the, the reason land. the reason I bring it up is to reiterate I think there is there are times at which you can just claim the stagecoach rule and just say, Well, there'd be no movie and I think this is the kind of movie that's worth it to sort of fudge the numbers around the margins a little bit and and buy into this premise that otherwise could be very easily resolved. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the the reason that it's successful and that it works is because of the the kind of polarities that you get that are always just appealing to people. Like, so if you have like the the kind of straight man and the wild man, like that's just something that automatically and that's set up from the very beginning as soon as that opening um, that opening bank robbery scene happens. And I think that's the other thing too is I, my my partner she looked at me and she was kind of like, oh, like is this gonna be like a fucking violent shoot him in the head? She's like, are they gonna kill that woman? Like, and that's not her favorite style of movie so for her it was kind of a and then about halfway three quarters through she was like i fucking love this movie she got so into it so there was something about even just these these relationship dramas that deepen and deepen and deepen because it isn't until halfway through that you actually understand why they're doing what they're doing right you kind of just okay they're doing something are they just bad guys are they just like tweakers as uh, as yeah. as alberto keeps saying you know you're like what the fuck is their deal and then you're like nah chris pine he's got his shit together too much he's he's not a he's not just doing it for chaotic reasons there's a reason here right and then you're like oh it's curious that they're only going texas midlands and then you're like oh wait is it because the cameras are out so they use a lot of like little kind of fabrications of drama to keep you invested I think just like little things here you're like oh so they're doing the Texas Midlands ones because the cameras are being switched out so they just must know this because maybe one of them works at at, at Texas Midlands Bank or or they have some sort of in there somehow right and so you're thinking so there's just these like little ways to lead you maybe I mean I know that that's kind of like a really kind of superficial answer for it I think but I think that's one of the reasons why they're able to get away with it and why it works why you don't have a moment where you stop and you say I could get off here if they just did this right it's only in reflection later that you say it because I think the flow is so good that it just kind of keeps you keeps you giving you what you want before you even know that you want it sort of thing for me it it always just comes down to that like emotional honesty that I think these characters could come off as very archetypal um, and it's a credit not only to uh, Mm. I think a very good script but also wonderful performances. Um, I would say all around, it's a wonderful ensemble. But this is something that you touched on a little bit with uh, our discussion of the writer, Austin, um, sort of uh, with regards to blending the line between uh, narrative and documentary, fact fiction. Um, And you went on this big rant about how there is no objective truth within narrative. Um, and you know, I, I understood where you, what you were saying with that and and where you were going with that. And I, I think that, 
uh, I think it's Werner Herzog who talks about this notion of ecstatic truth that, you know, mm. obviously everything is, uh, to, to paraphrase what you were saying last week, it's a matter of, you know, where the camera's being placed, whose perspective the story is from, you know, wh- why do they cut here as opposed to there, etc. Um, and I, I do think there is something to be said about a movie like this where you, you really feel for these guys and there is, mm. there is this beautiful, ecstatic, cinematic truth that takes you along on this journey without, um, like you said, having to stop at any point and be like, eh, but this doesn't make any sense. Well, because this is what they need to do to have the movie be interesting. <laughs> Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and, and remember how I said at the beginning, I was like, I, I like collect these, like, you know, what do you call, for lack of a better word, like, masculine poetry or like dude poetry things um the reason also like like for me somebody like like a film like um like badlands or days of heaven kind of fits that with terrence malick he was he was doing a sort of like like cowboy poetry with those films this film i feel like the cinematography also lends itself to this sort of longing right and maybe this is partly because of the authenticity of the characters and the performances that are turned in the relationships that are built the fact that we really start to become invested in the circumstances that are driving them but also there's this backdrop of destitution and desert towns and and it made me feel like there's a town here in Australia. I won't name it because I don't want to like talk shit about it because I'll probably go back there at some point soon. But we were driving through it on a recent road trip and my partner was like, oh, my God, I feel like we're in the middle of like like nowhere America. And I was like, yeah, I feel like there's like a town in like Oklahoma or something that has been deserted. Huge, just huge wide streets, you know, and like no cars and like storefronts that were built in like the 40s and like most of them are closed down now. And I I, I just, I get this, I don't know, it stirs something in me that is at once nostalgic for a time past and then also heartbroken and tragic for the fact that that time that maybe was once thriving or that was at once that they believed that they were on a path towards progress or towards prosperity or towards happiness or peace or whatever and that it's no longer there for them that 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 age has been subsumed under something else and so there's this this tragedy and and this hopefulness that's kind of all complicating each other and then there are just some shots like there's a shot where um, it's it's uh, a landscape. Well, no, it's it's like a wide shot where you've got Ben Foster leaning up against a pole, drinking a beer, and you got Chris Pine just a little off center frame, sitting on the bed of his truck, and they're talking. And then the the ranch is in the background, and there's a little bit of barbed wire in the foreground, and then you've just got this land, this this like expanse in the background, and the, and I'm like, that's a fu- that's like that's a every frame a painting. That is a painting, and I was like, that is so beautiful and it just gives you everything you need to know about who they are 
uh, Foster, the way he's leaning, drinking his beer, Pine sitting there pensive in the center of the screen, the ranch in the background, this beautiful backdrop of Texas. It just gives you everything you need to know in one visual image, and I think that's really great storytelling. And when you have those things, it gets you, and if you're if you're not paying attention to it, it still lands on you unconsciously, and if you are paying attention to it, then it gives you like this real rational meat to really chew on, and, and I think this film does that very well. Oh, that was really well put. Yeah, I would agree. And oh, I, I think uh, every, <laughs> I that everything. Bad. <laughs> no, I, I, all, all I was going to say is that everything you were saying um, uh, about what that drive through Australia sort of evoked in you, Austin, I, I think ties quite neatly into what Michael was saying about the sort of uh, retraction of civilization uh, against which this film is set. Yeah. And it's too bad we don't have too much time. We got to kind of wrap it up here. But I'd love to also just at least put this out there for people to think about how that that speech that Alberto gives about how, you know, this land was all once my ancestors until your people came along and stole it. And then now those people came along and stole it. One of my favorite kinds of westerns is the kind of the person who doesn't belong anymore, like the the times are passing you by sort of thing, like the the, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, right? Um, Unforgiven is kind of one of those, you know, um, a man who has to get brought back, right? Um, and so I, I find that really interesting, just as somebody who's getting older and, and you start thinking about like like what you're going to leave behind are you going to leave anything behind does that matter is that just like hubris is that something that, that shouldn't matter and then and then you start thinking about what you've inherited from people before you and then you start thinking about how how we modify that which we've inherited and how we've changed it sometimes virtuously and very often um, in violent and horrific ways and so for me there's something just really interesting about like this generational the generational divides or, or, or the movement, the slippage of time or something like that, 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 that this film addresses that I think is so interesting because now what's the mover of time? The mover of time is the, the, the movement and power of finance and who controls finance. And then what you see is how that exerts its power over the everyday person, you know? Um, and, and to me, that's, I think that's just a really lovely kind of motif that the film kind of hits on so but last thoughts we can't get too much into that let's just do do final thoughts here we got a couple more minutes so michael anything else we didn't discuss that you wanted to kind of just um kind of provoke us with Ooh, not really i think we covered a lot of good stuff and i don't want to add too much more to the uh the thought feast that hath been served out but um more than anything (laughs) i i think a great film a great evidence for why why the western uh, still works and and maybe works better than ever yeah and definitely something if you are like me and just kind of let this film pass you by when it came out. Highly recommended on Netflix right now. What else are you going to do for an hour and 47 minutes? That's it. What about you, Raymond? Um, well, I'll tell them exactly what to do with their hour and 47 minutes. Uh, if, you, if you've already seen Hell or High Water and you want to see uh, some of these themes tackled from exclusively a Native American perspective, I would highly recommend Reservation Dogs on, uh, on, uh, on FX. Oh, good show. It's currently streaming on Hulu. It's fucking hilarious, um, and it uh, it plays with a lot of sort of Western iconography uh, within uh, within its filmmaking. And if you are interested in more movies about the encroachment of capitalism on the American West, I would recommend pretty much everything directed by Kelly Reichardt, but especially uh, her most mm. recent film, First Cow. I have not seen First Cow yet. Is it is it worth it? Yeah. 
I like it quite a bit, but I'm, I mean, like, I adore Kelly Riker. I, I think I bring her up every other episode, so um, I'm, I'm not I'm a, biased a Riker stand like Raymond, and I can confirm it's, it's, it's pretty good. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I did want to see it when I saw the trailer. So is it A24? Yes. Yeah, they're all A24, aren't they? All... You just, they just just sign me up. Just take my money. Um, okay, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you so much for tuning in. I believe we're doing Power of the Dog next week. Is that is that right, Raymond? I, I mean, that's what that's what I keep hearing. Yeah. That's what's been said okay. in the hallways of uh, Wisecrack Corporate Headquarters. When I go up to floor six, uh, the team there is talking about it. So, Okay, well, then we have to abide by the corporate overlord's rules. So we're doing Power of the Dog, I guess. Okay, so um, I believe it is also on Netflix. Isn't it on Netflix right yeah, now? Netflix I saw it. it. It's a Netflix movie, okay. so it's presumably always going to be on Netflix. Oh, I saw it at the Sydney Film Fest. So I oh, saw it in the theater. So this guy. Wow. Uh, it was my first outing after <laughs> Mr. the lockdown. Mr. Jane Campion so felt- himself. <laughs> <laughs> so um cool but so it's on netflix so check that out uh, make sure you catch up on that i guess ahead of time so that you can enjoy the chat with us while we're talking about it also make sure to follow us on twitter it's smtm underscore pod that's smtm underscore pod you can also email us at movies at wisecrack.co movies at wisecrack.co please do we are going to have a mailbag uh segment here in the next or, i'm sorry episode here in the next couple of weeks um probably what maybe in the next in the next three or so weeks we should probably get into one of those um you can also call and leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807 1-213-534-8807 check out culture binge michael where can people find you on the internet other than culture binge oh and you know sometimes we steal raymond for culture binge too he's a fan favorite all the husbands love him um you can find <laughs> me uh at michael o burns on twitter and something similar on instagram and uh burns for 2069 on letterboxd seems like a good podcast to mention letterboxd awesome what about you raymond yeah you can find me on uh, twitter and letterboxd i'm at crematoria and uh occasionally over on my friend michael's podcast culture binge um and oh just to just to say they had a great episode uh this this past week about uh, nfts <laughs> we are oh, nft shit. experts um, yeah and i'm, I'm really looking forward to the first culture binge nft now i'm working on it right now as of right now, it's an iPhone <laughs> picture of me um, um, flicking off a picture of uh, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Apparently, there's some dude that has been inventing philosophy concepts and turning them into NFTs. So um, Finally, I, the dream yeah. of Socrates realized in our very age. <laughs> philosophy consummated in its final form. World spirit is, is reunited with itself. I'm so happy. Sorry. It, it is the truth. The capital T ecstatic <laughs> truth. Um, yeah, and if you want, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I'm on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. We just did an episode on Station Eleven, which is the, my favorite series that I've seen in uh, recent memory. And um, so, yeah, so Troy actually has read the book on that. I had not read the book, but we talk about the series. I freaking love it. So if you're a fan of the series, go check that out. If not, go check out the podcast because we do all kinds of shit. So, yeah, anyway, send really us out of here, Raymond. Out. Goodbye from the final Texas Midlands branch in post.